Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of The Doctors Are In. I'm your co-host, Jake, and... I'm Kaylee. Here at The Doctors Are In, we're a veterinary-focused podcast aimed at introducing veterinary topics of a variety of sorts to students, professionals, and people that are just generally interested in this kind of stuff. We're two veterinary students right now going into our third and second year, respectively. And we just want to do create and share this podcast with everyone to kind of talk about our interest. What he said. So some business from the last episode, towards the end of episode one, I'd mentioned about the possibility of a biosecurity break with the Peerbright Institute in England. And I talked about how there was mad cow disease had been leaked. Mm-hmm. So I was right about the Peerbright Institute, wrong about BSE. So what actually happened was it was foot and mouth disease in 2007. So the strain that was found to be infecting cows in Surrey, where the institute is, was the exact same strain that the institute was using for vaccines. So because there was no mutation, there was no difference, this indicates that there was an accidental biosecurity breach and the virus got out of Purebright. So this ended up with mass calls of cattle and a ban on the movement of all livestock in England, Scotland, and Wales. So this was a huge hard hit for farmers following the mad cow epidemic. So this was not long after mad cow disease ravaged their country. I also read an article saying that there's possibly a link that bovine TB has also been leaked from the same institute, but I don't know how true that one is. So just a little update on last time. Okay. And today we're talking about Asian murder hornets, or as I like to call them, the scariest looking things I've ever seen. If you've ever seen a picture of one of these things. Yeah, this is our our Hell Nah episode. Don't watch a YouTube video of these things. Oh my God. I uh, I had the creeps the entire time I was researching everything and the pictures. I couldn't look at the pictures. They were too, too much. Well, it is the largest hornet in the world. It's the scientific name is Vespa mandarina. Nope, Man, Man, Vespa mandarinia. Vespa mandarinia. And it is the largest hornet in the world. And it's like its common name is the Asian giant hornet. <laughs> J- say it again. <laughs> <laughs> giant. Its common name is the Asian giant hornet. Um, so apparently it's easily distinguishable from other Asian hornet species. But uh, just due to wing size and markings, that make it very distinctive. Okay, so I've got some uh, quick facts about uh, the Asian giant hornets or Japanese giant hornets to rattle off here before we get into the meat and bones. So you can hear about how insane these things are and why I never, ever want to see one. Quick facts, like what? All right, to start. They're generally 3.8 to 5 centimeters long. So for American friends, that's one and a half to two inches. And they have a wingspan of seven and a half centimeters and a stinger of six millimeters. Like this thing is insanely large. And six millimeters. Holy moly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so gross. <laughs> they are native to Asia, but have been found recently in Washington in the U.S. and British Columbia, Canada. So there's actually only two confirmed hornets in 2019 in Washington, but there was a nest found in BC. Isn't oh, that's funny. It's like, it's so minimal, but everyone's ro- like the news cycles rolling with murder hornets are in America, like yeah, a whole and, nest, like big deal. 
and that's because a single hornet can kill dozens of honeybees in minutes. And a group of 30 hornets can destroy a colony of 30,000 bees in less than four hours. You know, ever since taking like a, a couple bee classes and visiting that meadery in class, I was like, I have a connection with bees. <laughs> the bee whisperer? Well, it's like you see one of those things flying around, you're like, thank you. Thank you for all you do. And then you got these hornets coming in and you're like, what? Yes, I guess people are kind of wondering, how does, what, what do bees and hornets have to do with that? Good question. I had no idea until vet school where it's called what, horticulture? Or is that a totally, that might be completely wrong. What is beekeeping? Like, what is that? Oh, it's, branch? I know what you're talking yeah. about. It's I'm not. I'm going to Google it right now. Yes, okay. It's called, it's not easy to find here. What, what are it's apiary. Apiary, isn't it? So, is it like an apiary? Is oh, apiculture? Yeah. Is it apiary? API. Okay, so I guess beekeepers are apiculturists. I guess it's defined as the maintenance of bee colonies. So they were probably on the lookout when these uh, giant hornets were announced in North America. And I think just to to put out there, like when we started vet school, it was there was so much emphasis put on how bees and bee medicine is becoming such a large field in veterinary medicine, especially because Alberta put more limitations on medically important antibiotics. So there's a bunch of, there's bacteria, parasites, all sorts of things that affect bees. And now they, they need a veterinarian to go out to give them the prescription for antibiotics, whereas they used to be able to buy stuff at like a PV Mart or something, which is where we come in. Bees already have so much like kind of ruining their, their you know, like you, have, like you said, you have bacteria. It just seems like a, it'd be a difficult time. It's a bad time for the, the murder hornets to come in. <laughs> Scratch everything I just said there. <laughs> I was like, just trying to, be, trying to be sympathetic to the bees, but I'm like, no. Nah, like, <laughs> it I rough was scared time. of bees as a kid, right? Like, listen, bees and I I'm still scared still of recovered. bees. Until I had like that mead that they made. Like, what was that? Did you, you were on that field trip, obviously. Yeah, we went to Fallen Timber Meadery for a class in Vetman. That was amazing. That was incredible. That was like a family operation, right? Yeah, and so everybody go and drink Fallen Timber Mead because they have something called a mead hito, which is like a mojito made with mead, which is alcohol from bees and honey. And it was insane. They gave us a tour. They showed us some of their bees. I learned so much about bees. And the samples were A+. Plus. <laughs> Take us to where it's made, please. <laughs> really yeah, enjoyed when they showed us, like, the cross-section they had of the hive with their bees. I had no idea that bees are active in the winter, so. Really? I was paying attention, I promise. I, I just, <laughs> you remember the name of the place, so you clearly have a better grasp on that it than I do. was so ill on that field trip, I was actually dying it turns out it's likely that I had pneumonia, so. Do you remember yeah, they, like, so isolated me at the front of the school bus and nobody sat near me? <laughs> I do remember that, no, actually. Yeah, that was funny. Was that isolation or was that just because you only sit at the front and no one wants to sit by you? Uh, oh. Kill shot. No, I had too many cle- uh, Kleenex boxes beside me for anyone to sit there. <laughs> Excuses. I guess back to the finishing off the last of these couple facts here. So the hornets will eat young bee queens, which is why they attack hives in the late summer, early fall. And they also have seven times the amount of venom a honeybee has. 
seven times. So it's believed that their sting feels about like three to ten wasp stings all at the same time. These things can sting through a beekeeper suit. Through a beekeeper suit. That's supposed to stop things from stinging you. Thank God they're not here. And finally, another name for this hornet is a yak killer. Why is is it called a yak killer? Because it kills yaks. How? the past i mean like i will go into how you can die from the venom and oh my gosh i took such a deep dive with how hornet venom works and what happens it's it's very cool all right jake why don't you take us away here with uh where these giant suckers are from okay so the murder hornet there in this case we're going to call it the asian giant hornet because murder hornet i don't know is it really that i think it was that name kind of got popularized by the media especially like when they wrote the article about their entrance to north america i think they kind of ran with that name and i think the actual death toll is only like it's actually like impressive but it's only like 12 to 20 people a year i think the name murder hornet definitely does instill some fear so their kind of main original distribution in the world is uh, based on their name, the Asian giant hornet. They're native to Japan, but they are established in many parts of Asia, including Thailand, China, Nepal, as well as Russia. So that, that far north. They generally don't like to set up shop in mountainous regions or any, anywhere relatively high altitude, which is interesting considering they're in Nepal, but they have not established themselves at all in Western Europe although sporadic records of their occurrence have been documented. The reason we're talking about them today is because in terms of distribution, they've recently been making headway into North America, first into British Columbia in 2017 and 18, I believe, with more recent occurrences of their uh, appearance. And then in 2019, one was a worker specimen was isolated in Washington state. Uh, So that kind of set off a panic of are, how are they getting here and are we going to see colonies of these giant hornets forming? I don't think you ever want to kind of have an invasive species set up shop and especially one that carries the moniker murder hornet. Yeah, that's a little uh, daunting. Yeah, so as I was saying earlier, so it's, it seems here that the hornet has been found five different times in the Vancouver area, once in the Nanaimo, British Columbia area, once in the Blaine, Washington state area, a couple other locations such as Langley, BC, Custer, Washington. So it's not necessarily an isolated occurrence. It definitely does seem to be a, a recurring issue. And I believe it's just because they're ha- they, these hornets, whether it's a queen or a worker, are hitching rides on shipping containers. And uh, I'm impressed they're even surviving the trip. Are they coming in food, Kaylee? Any idea on that? Yeah, I heard that one theory was that possible containers of fruit they just work their way into a crate or something yeah because they'd have to survive the trip and they they feed on sweet sweet like sweet fruits so that would make sense okay so that's pretty much what their distribution is like i said they carry that name for a reason but pretty soon we might be calling them the north american giant hornet at this rate oh my gosh don't say that (laughs) i had no idea that they were there they'd been found five times in bc that's five times too many That's in the Vancouver area alone, so it's a bit higher than that if you include the other occurrences. Regarding their nesting, so these hornets, the Asian giant hornet, obviously that's a type of wasp, so it's actually a species of wasp, and most species of wasp are eusocial, 
So that's kind of a, a moniker coins for certain animals such as ants, bees, termites, and some researchers suggest humans, but uh, it's been disputed. Now essentially what that means is it's kind of a, a giant colony that shares parental uh, responsibilities. There are different roles assigned to different types of, I guess, individuals. So you can have workers, drones, I guess, warriors, queens, and then the overarching uh, distinction is reproductive units and non-reproductive units. So you have your queens, both fertile and non-fertile, and your males, which are, are assumed responsibility of inseminating the queens. And then pretty much all other examples of giant hornets in a colony do not bear any responsibility for reproducing. So those are the ones that kind of go out and get food, go out and hunt. Yeah. So it's up to the queen to establish colonies. She'll generally do that in around April if she's inseminated. If not, she'll never start forming a colony. She'll never nestle down and get ready to lay some eggs. She'll just eventually uh, either die off or establish or kind of join another established a colony. Now, Asian giant hornets generally nest in low mountain foothills or lowland forests. Um, and considering the fact that they're such a dominant species in terms of, uh, among other wasp uh, species, they generally have no direct competition in terms of establishing colonies in these specific areas. Unlike other species of wasp, species, species, species. Unlike other species of wasp, uh, the Asian giant hornet almost exclusively inhabits subterranean nests. So you'll never see one of those nests up in high, up high in a tree or kind of nestled in the corner of your garage because they prefer to kind of go underground in already established tunnels created by other animals or you know, rotting fallen trees, stuff like that. In a study of 31 nests here, uh, 25 were found around rotten pine roots. As, as I said earlier, they'll take over the already established tunnels, generally abandoned tunnels of rodents, snakes, and other burrowing animals. Do you know if they... <laughs> take over like other wasps like no it doesn't out. say anything about that either here no yeah no i haven't seen anything about that especially since they prefer not to have elevated nest so it would seem that any other wasp that obviously maybe leaves behind a subterranean nest it could be right for the uh to overtake but i don't know if that's the case here we won't really go into the description of the nest obviously it's not, not much of a problem here. I don't think there's only been one established actual colony in North America, in BC. And uh, there's a bunch of videos on YouTube of people going around and you know going to destroy the nest. So before nesting, there's a pre-nesting period where a queen, both inseminated and uninseminated queens, will enter hibernation following a full reproductive cycle. As I said earlier, they kind of appear mid to early April and they begin feeding on tree sap, mostly oak tree uh, sap. So while this, this timing is consistent with other hornets, uh, the Asian giant hornet kind of dominates the order. And according to this uh, specific article, they receive preference for premium tree sap. I don't know what uh, premium tree sap entails for wasps, but it's probably the sweeter, richer sap. What the heck? <laughs> yeah. And not only, there's, no, there's not only interspecies uh, dominance hierarchy, but there's also a, an intraspecies dominance hierarchy, whereas there are top-ranked queens while, while they begin feeding, other queens will form a circle around her and uh, every single queen in the order of their dominance higher, like their level of dominance will feed one after the other. That's kind of an interesting 
kind of quirk there. There are multiple queens. It's weird. Yeah. It's like what and honeybees have one, hey? One main queen, I guess, yeah. So it's only the inseminated queens that start searching for nesting sites. So they'll actually purposely look for a site to begin a colony in late April. And as I mentioned earlier, the unseminated queens never search for nests because their ovaries never fully develop. They continue to feed on tree sap, but they disappear in early July. So once the inseminated queen finds a site, she'll create a relatively small cavity where in which she'll raise around 40 small workers. The workers do not begin work outside the hive until mid-July, and the queens participate in activities outside the hive until mid-July, early August, after which they stay inside the nest and allow workers to do all the activities related to nest upkeep and protection. Around early August, so I guess we have the nest forming late April. It's only around early August that we consider it a fully developed nest. So it took quite a few months to get to this point. And a fully developed nest that kind of cut off there is a tree comb. Uh, it is a nest that contains three combs holding 500 cells and around 100 workers. So that's our fully developed nest cut off there. After around mid-September, no more eggs are laid and the focus shifts to caring for the larvae, after which the queens die in October. So that's kind of your full nesting cycle there. So they live for one season, the Essentially queens. one season, yeah. Okay. Uh, after which, yeah, there's something else that talks about how other queens might take over a hive after the originating queen dies. Uh, it says here, yeah, about one season. So in the late fall, mid-September, October, the founding queen dies and the original colony quickly weakens as workers die off and are not replaced. So yeah, you might get these cyclical hives starting every few months, uh, but only lasting for uh, about half the year. Okay, so and you need a queen to start a colony. Yes, you do. And new colonies and new queens are formed by... Okay, so colonies grow into the summer, and in fall, a brood of reproductive females and males emerge at the end of October. The male hornets leave the nest and wait outside the entrance to mate with new queens emerging from the nest. So once the new queens mate, typically only with one male, they begin searching for an ideal site. So it looks like that you might get some queens from an original colony and that's how the cycle continues. Ooh, I don't like it. <laughs> Just the comically like aggressive faces, the image of this podcast. It's like, they look like the depiction of pure evil. Right, it's so menacing. So menacing. It's so menacing, yeah. All right, so as I said before, I really got into the biology of venom. It was so much fun. And also because I have been stung so many times because I have this affinity for stepping on wasps um, that it was very cool to go over this and because I've seen what happens with the stings, knowing what's actually going on is really interesting. So what was the worst sting you've ever gotten? I'm sure every child has like a memory of the, that one time they were stung and it just never... Mine was never two years away. ago. Oh, I said <laughs> child, but... I guess grown adults can also be traumatized by bee sting as well. Well, I remember the first time I was ever stung, and it was when I was in Vancouver, so I was like three years old, and I stepped on a bee. I had this. It came back after you? After you stepped on it? No, it stung me when I stepped on it. Oh, you stepped on it with your bare feet. Yeah, this is how I keep getting stung, and uh, like five years ago, I stepped on a wasp here, was stung by that. I think three out of the four times I've 
forget the five times I've been stung has been by you just like high stepping around town here, like just like I don't I um, I know. (laughs) The worst one though was two summers ago when I was biking outside. Two summer two summers ago. Shut up. (laughs) So two two summers ago. Sorry, you mean two? Two. That's what I said, two. You said chew. Chew summers ago. Continue. He's going after my accent here. <laughs> um, really no accent except one little thing. One word that you can't, say, you can't say two or any variation of It's Tuesday. Tuesday. That is the right way to say Anyways, I was out cycling. I was going about 30 kilometers an hour. Something hits my face and I could, I thought it was a beetle. It was holding on to my lip and then I went to wipe it away and it stung me right on my lip. And that yeah, is the, suck. oh, I've got a picture. I'll just, I'll send you a picture right now. No, uh, don't, don't worry about it. No, I am. I am. <laughs> People were calling me the bad Kylie Jenner. Yeah, I know. That's but, tough. And so my my lip and then later on the whole side of my face swelled up. I mean, like, this other guy was biking, him and his daughter, and he pulled over. They were going past me, and he's like, you okay? And then he looks at my face, and he's like, oh, my God, you're not okay. <laughs> By that point, nothing had happened yet, though, right? Uh, no, it, it, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Holy, sorry, okay, sorry. I'm sending you the picture of her messenger right now. And this was just when I got home. It got so much worse. That is rough. Look at, <laughs> Jesus. It's so massive. I called my brother to come pick me up and he's like, no, I'm busy. <laughs> well, I was I mean, like 30 here. kilometers out of town on my bike. <laughs> That sucks. Yeah, that would suck, I guess. If you're like, you're just like, oh, what is that? Rubbing it off your face and boom, stomp. Yeah, because I have terrible luck. The swelling went down by the next day. And then the day after it came back and the entire left side of my face was swollen because apparently I got like an infection from it because my life is a joke. (laughs) So to start, uh, wasp and hornet venoms are both primarily made of proteins. So a major component of this venom are things called allergic proteins. So the allergic proteins are considered to be the proteins that actually cause a reaction. So they bind to certain types of our antibodies, specifically called IgE. Now IgE is kind of like a fire alarm. So when it's bound, it goes off and it raises an alarm that something is very, very wrong. So sometimes IgE has false alarms and is responsible for type 1 hypersensitivities, or aka an anaphylactic reaction. Now I'm not going to go too much further into allergic reactions because that is a super large complex topic. (laughs) So I'm just going to steer clear of the details on that. An example of one of these allergic proteins is hyaluronidase, which is also a spreading factor that helps amplify the venom's effects. So there's also small amounts of vasoactive amines, and that is a substance that interferes with our vasculature, and it makes our blood vessels very leaky. So there's also a single-chain polypeptide called mandarotoxin after the hornet's Latin name, and it is only possessed by giant hornets. But beyond being a neurotoxin, I couldn't really find much on what it does or how it works besides interfering with sodium channels and nerves, which is pretty major. That kind of means the nerves can't regulate themselves anymore. So some other compounds that will intensify the pain we feel caused by the Vespid stings are called uh, serotonin, 
wasp kinines and acetylcholine. Wasp kinine also contributes to making our blood vessels leaky, which can contribute to hemorrhage that I'll talk about a bit later as a side effect of one of these stings. Now the serotonin and acetylcholine are already found in our bodies and our neurotransmitters, meaning that they help carry signals between our nerves. So by adding additional neurotransmitters, the wasp is creating a reaction to our nerves that um, the venom is controlling. And there's also something called antigen 5, which seems to be in nearly all wasp and hornet and bee venoms, but I couldn't really find out what that it, what it does either. Other than it's very similar in compound to a scorpion neurotoxin and proteins that are made from brain tumors. So that one is, that one's pretty interesting. Jesus, that is pretty cool. What do you mean proteins made from brain tumors? So certain brain tumors will secrete, I guess, proteins. I don't know if it's a byproduct or it's just an additional thing to being a tumor, but the proteins it makes are very similar to this antigen 5 thing. So it's come up, it comes up a lot in the literature I was reading, but it doesn't, I couldn't really find something specific for what it does. Cool. All right, so I guess I will go into, now that I've like covered some of the compounds in there, I'll go into what happens when you actually get stung by a wasp or a hornet, because they're quite similar. So to start, the stinger will deliver the venom and it's taken up by your blood. So the thing about giant hornets is they are not the most venomous hornet, but they deliver the largest amount of venom per sting. So after you're stung, the peptides, which are small proteins um, called mastopran, and then enzymes such as phospholipase in the venom, begin to break down your cell membranes. So this causes your cells to die. It causes them to kind of blow up and it releases the contents into the bloodstream. So not only are your cells dying, but now there is uh, some toxic materials as well that are in your cells that are being released. And this also affects neurons. So this causes the injured neuron to send signals to the brain and this far amplifies the actual pain you're feeling. So it makes it way more painful. Thirdly, to make sure the pain keeps coming. So this is a further amplification of the pain from the venom so that you're like, oh my gosh, this hurts so much. I don't want to ever be stung again. So some of the other uh, substances that cause this are norepinephrine. So the norepinephrine delivered in the venom, which you also have in your body normally, constricts the blood vessel so much. So it causes the blood vessel to kind of go into a really cramped mode and it temporarily stops the flow of blood to that area. So this is why you get like a little white spot in the middle of all the redness, You're that little white welt in the middle. There's all the constricted blood vessels there, which stops the blood flow. And this also causes the pain of the wasp sting to last longer because the blood is not diluting the venom and carrying it away to be disposed of. So it pretty much just keeps it there to hurt longer. What is the most venom or I guess noxious sting? Like are there, so there's another hornet species out there with an even more potent sting? Yes, and I don't think I wrote down which one it was, but I do like talk about it a bit later about, about how much it actually like delivers in a sting. The Asian giant hornet. Eh? Yeah. Okay, so it's just clearly a size thing where the bigger the hornet, the larger. Yeah, the larger the uh, amount the, of venom. The sting. Yeah. So finally, 
the Hyaluronidase and mast cell degranulating peptide paved the way for more membrane-destroying elements in the venom to move on to your other cells. So this is that spreading factor. So what happens is as it spreads out under your skin, it's destroying the connective tissue between them. This leads to more swelling and redness associated with the most, most insect sting. So this is how the little welt goes to spread and get larger because it's like melting away connective tissue under your skin so that the venom can spread more easily. Yeah, yeah it's terrifying. When you described it, usually you don't think that's what's going on, but that's pretty crazy. Right? Yeah. So that's how you go from the white welts in the center to all of the swelling surrounding it and how the redness just keeps going. So with the Asian giant hornet sting victims will generally have either skin hemorrhaging, so bleeding under the skin, or tissue necrosis meaning the skin is dying at the site of the sting due to these compounds that I was talking about. Okay, so in rare instances, you can experience both hemorrhaging and tissue necrosis, but that has been attributed to an inability to clear the venom. So this is a genetic anomaly that um, the sting victims will have. So like a one in a million sort of thing where they just, they have some sort of deficiency, probably white blood cells, who knows, that leads the venom to stay there and continue damaging so it's not getting diluted or anything. So some people might like, like when they get stung, they're perpetually at risk until they get treatment. Yeah, yeah. So it'll sit there under the skin instead of being cleared away. So it's kind of like if you get hot oil on your hand, usually you're going to brush it off or wash it off right away so it doesn't keep burning. But in this instance, it would be like if they just left the hot oil on their hand, it's going to create a really, really bad burn. Great analogy. Okay. okay. Thank you. In 2014, 41 people died because of the giant Asian hornet stings in a single province of China. And most people will die because of a major anaphylactic reaction. So that means that their body completely overreacts and it causes swelling and generally closure of airways and that's how they die. However, it is possible that some have actually died due to venom overload. So multiple stings can cause effects such as intravascular hemolysis, so the destruction of your red blood cells, rhabdomyolysis, the destruction of muscle, acute kidney injury, liver impairment, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, or DIC, which is when your blood will just clot throughout your body. It blocks blood vessels. <laughs> it's really bad. And then you can also have central nervous system damage and then direct toxicity of your organ. This results in people dying of multiple organ failure. And a retrospective study that I found actually gives the average number of stings that results in death due to venom overload at 59. So it's not very common. Justin Schmidt from University of Arizona tested hornet venom on mice, and I feel really bad for the little mice there. So when a giant hornet stings you, it injects about 1,100 micrograms versus, give me a guess about what you think comes from a little honeybee. Um, like maybe 100 micrograms, I don't know. Dude, that's actually really close. Uh, it's actually around 150 from... A little honeybee there. So compared to the eleven hundred, that's insane. Yeah. So just a massive amount. And Schmidt found that just one sting could have a fifty percent chance of killing a mouse. 
which I mean, like that amount of venom in a mouse, that's insane, that defense. So yeah, well, the giant hornet is not the most venomous hornet. It delivers the largest volume of venom, as I mentioned before. Yeah, just crazy. And speaking of crazy, Schmidt spent decades letting himself be stung by all sorts of insects and developed a ranking system. The craziest part is that he's not the only person to have done this. So there's a couple people that have their own ranking systems for pain. Um, so although he's been stung by over 80 insects, the Asian giant hornet isn't actually one of them, but he has talked with multiple colleagues who've been stung and he estimates that it's the equivalent to about three to 10 yellow jackets stinging at the same time. So according to his system, what ranks is about 10 times more painful than a giant hornet are bullet ants. And what is super interesting about that, that I, I found was that bee and wasp venoms, as I've said, are mostly made of proteins, regular proteins, but ant venom is up to about 95% alkaloids, which have a nitrogenous base, so much more reactive. Okay, so you're saying bullet ant stings are in general more noxious than hornet stings? Yes, because of the super high amount of alkaloids in their sting. Is it is it a sting from a bullet ant or a bite? Both. You can have both. Oh, wow. So alkaloids. So that's funny. Like nicotine is an alkaloid. So that's what's in plants like nightshade and wolfsbane, right? Yeah, yeah. I just listened to like a whole podcast on wolfsbane and how it's one of the most, the most deadliest plants known to humans and mammals and yeah that act like it stores alkaloids in its flowers and roots and stuff cool. yeah okay. um yeah and then i guess just to wrap things up i can't remember like what show this was but like ages ago i watched a show where they were talking about this guy who let himself be stung hundreds of times and i believe it was by like the same insect and he did it to determine where the most painful places on the body were to be stung. And not surprisingly, number one is the genitals. <laughs> and he said, closely followed on the pain scale are the lips. So there you have it. I can confirm that getting stung in the face is super painful. Confirmed. And oh. that's the end of venom biology. You definitely did do your homework. That was well... I was in depth. Holy Thank moly. I, was, I didn't yeah, know it was mostly proteins that were kind of causing the issues there. I, and it's not even like proteins foreign to us. It's like proteins that are already being used in our body that they have evolved to have like humanoid proteins or ones mammals use like serotonin and norepinephrine to make us have a reaction to it. it Literally break down tissues. That's insane. Which is, I had no idea that it literally melts away connective tissues and dissolves your cells. No wonder it's so painful. And of course, like every insect has a different composition, like a different percentage of all those different compounds, but they all, the compounds still do the same thing. So Jake, I hear you've got a little bit of information on how humans deal with these hornets back in their uh, natural habitats, i.e. not North America. So control of these specific hornets can be quite difficult just due to the inherent risk of being stung by them and certain measures that exist for other uh, species of wasps 
aren't really covered here as they can penetrate standard beekeeping suits. I obviously assume there's a specialized suit for larger animals, larger uh, wasps than a standard beekeeping suit. But another problem that people trying to control these wasp populations face is a lack of accessibility of their nest. So generally speaking, you have standard wasp nests, which are easily visible up high in a tree. Um, but as mentioned earlier, these wasp nests are generally subterranean, hidden away in rotted pine logs, underground burrows to, uh, left behind by other animals. So it might be difficult to locate these nests. So in the past, Japanese inhabitants, so this is where the wasp is a native, is a native species, have used physical elimination. Uh, so like physically going after the nest, digging it up, destroying it, as well as chemicals to, uh, to kill or reduce the giant hornet uh, colonies. Though, as I said, these nests are very difficult to kill or to locate and destroy. The U.S. government has experimented with ready-to-use aerosols and concentrates to control other species of hornets, um, but have not had the opportunity to test them on this specific example. What government was that, sorry? That's the U.S. government. So, oh, okay. <laughs> and it says here, utilized by the U.S. Department of Defense. So it's definitely not an agricultural problem anymore. It's... Wow, it's really upgraded. Apparently. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. So here are some examples of control methods. We have beating. <laughs> so the hornets are physically crushed with wooden sticks with flat heads. I like that um, one. Yeah, strangely enough, the hornets don't counterattack when they are in the bee hunting phase or the hive attack phase, but they aggressively guard a beehive once they kill the defenders and occupy it. Now, oh. that's kind of interesting. So they won't even resist attack, like attack humans that are beating them per se when they're in this phase so they're pretty exposed at this point one track mind yeah exactly the biggest expenditure of this method is the process like the time uh, involved in killing them it's really inefficient but you said there's only like a hundred wasps per colony was that what you said established colony yeah that's at the point where we consider it a fully developed colony. Oh, so, it so not like a limit. We could have larger colonies, so okay. I have no idea what the higher end of that would be. I couldn't imagine it would be much, much larger. Uh, another method for extermination is nest removal. So you can apply poisons or fires at night. Uh, that's a very effective way of exterminating a colony. Although, uh, like I said earlier, the most difficult part of this is finding the nest. Now, the most interesting, the most common method of discovering a nest is giving a piece of frog or fish meat attached to a cotton ball to a wasp and following it back to its nest. So they literally just bait these wasps and follow them back. Um, now, with the Asian no. giant hornets, yeah, yes, surprising, right? With the Asian giant hornet, this is particularly difficult considering it has a common home flight radius of one to two kilometers. Yeah, I found it was like around 700 meters to a kilometer too. Right. And then apparently the Asian giant hornet can travel up to eight kilometers away from, it, from its nest. Well, thank That's you. Yeah. Uh, another way, obviously, is mass poisonings. Um, so hornets that are found at apiaries, so where beekeeps, where honeybees are kept, uh, can be captured and fed a sugar solution, can be fed with a poison. Now, this toxin is spread to other uh, hornets through trophallaxis. What is trophallaxis? Is that when they puke it up? I don't know, probably, eh? Let me Google that, trophallaxis. Oh yeah, you're right. It's the mutual exchange of regurgitated liquids. Okay, oh my so. God, I am one for one. 
So the mass poisoning method works by you feed a poisonous solution to one or two hornets, let them return to the colony, and the toxin spreads throughout a large portion of the colony through trophallaxis, which is common in ants, bees, wasps, uh, and it's where they regurgitate liquids uh, between the adults. Jake had mentioned a paper to me that he read about the Asian giant hornets being the most dominant wasp species. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, so researchers have wanted to evaluate the level of inter and intraspecies dominance. So yeah, researchers wanted to measure dominance by experimentally observing four different species of wasp. Now these are like the larger, more aggressive, voracious species. Uh, comparing it to the Asian giant hornet. And one of the parameters they used to measure this dominance was uh, interaction-mediated departures, which uh, are defined as scenarios wherein one species leaves its position due to the arrival of a more dominant individual. The Asian giant hornet win rate in this realm was 98.3% based on these interaction-mediated departures, meaning that it was the big bad, big, big bad wasp in town. So with that said, and as I... I mentioned before that hornets can kill thousands of bees in just a couple of minutes. You know, I think it's validated to have a concern about how this might affect our bee population and in turn our agriculture because, man, the role they play is just huge. So what I found pretty much by looking at some articles from some of our experts in North America is that there isn't really a concern. So what was especially dangerous is that they like to eat the queens of the beehive. So this was incredibly worrying to the beekeepers in North America because, you know, queens, as we've mentioned, are the sole reason for a colony's existence. You know, she's the only fertile one. Without her, the colony collapses. So the only good characteristic here is that the hornets don't really stray too far from their nests, as Jake mentioned. They don't really like to go more than a K or two away. So the threat to commercial hives can hopefully be controlled by locating these nests if they were to develop in North America. However, that doesn't protect the bees that come across the hornets or wild colonies. So if we're so worried about our bees, then how come colony destruction isn't a huge problem in Asia? So from what I found, it is and it isn't. So in places like Japan, for example, wire nets are used to protect the commercial hives. And while multiple hornets can decapitate bees and destroy a colony, it still takes a single hornet to find the bee colony and mark it with pheromones so that the rest can come and find it. So unlike our bees who haven't been exposed to this predator before, Asian bees have developed a super cool strategy to defend their hives from a single intruder through an organized process called scorching. And I'm going to put a picture up because it's really cool. Did you come across scorching, Jake, in your you're reading? Uh, not really scorching. It was just lighting fires to the nest for control methods. This is by the actual Asian honeybees, so this is really cool. Okay, so that's how the bees control the wasps? Yeah, or so the they can only take on one or two at a time, so generally the scout hornets that, you know, try and mark the nest. So what happens is that when a wasp tries to enter the hive, the bees mob it, and they essentially create like a huge, massive doggy pile. So when the wasp is completely covered in bees, they start to vibrate their wings really, really fast and create frictional heat. 
And so when they do this together, they raise the internal temperature of the bee ball to a whopping 50 degrees Celsius or 122 Fahrenheit. So that kills the hornet, like they quite literally bake it. And then by protect, to protect themselves in the process, the bees are constantly rotating from the inside to the outside and vice versa so that they're, they're not baking themselves. It also causes like a huge increase in the CO2 levels in the hives. So they also essentially like gas the hornet at the same time. That's insane. So the horn, I guess the bees can survive just a bit hotter than the, the temperature they get to. Yeah, yeah. So I just, it's insane. So our bees don't have this process to this extent, but that doesn't mean they can't develop this behavior in a response to a predator. So our North American bees have a really similar process that they do in the winter to keep themselves from freezing to death. So during winter, our bees hibernate kind of and kind of don't. So they don't often leave their hive in the winter, but they're, they aren't sleeping at the same time. So bees in Canada, especially where we get lots of snow, the bees create a similar bee ball in their hive with like the queen in the center to keep themselves warm and all of them alive by producing heat and rotating bees through the ball to keep them warm. So it takes a lot of energy to be continuously moving. So this is the reason honey is made. It's their energy source so that the bees can make this bee ball and stay alive all winter. But not to worry because we aren't starving bees when we take the honey because beekeepers will replace it with sugar water so that the bees still have something. We, our bees have a similar behavioral pattern, just used themselves warm instead of killing predators. All in all, hornets could be a threat to our colonies, but it's not reason to panic. Many entomologists have come forward saying it's super unlikely that the wasps are going to stick around. They are, uh, yeah, not super suited for our climates here. Yeah, I had never thought, yeah, honestly, looking at videos and pictures of this hornet, you know, you learn a lot, but you also realize that seeing one of these things, like, out in the wild, like, I bet you the buzzing this thing makes, it's just... Terrifying. Yeah, like, you think, like, 1.8 inches, that's, like, a a wasp that big? That's insane. I just sent you a picture of the bee ball killing the wasp. Okay, the scorching, yeah. What a, like whoever caught this picture is that's incredible. Like just seeing the size of the wasp head compared to the you know compared to the bees, yeah. Twice the size of a bee, you know, it's ridiculous when you think about it. But I bet that like the bee ball makes quite a substantial amount of noise as well. <laughs> yeah, just makes it like that is crazy. I wonder how long that took to adapt, you know, to evolve that defense mechanism. Yeah, um, like when did they realize this works? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, overall. I mean, the consensus from the experts is that we don't have much to uh, worry about in North America. So they think that, yeah, the one colony that did form, they think it was just accidental that instead of a regular worker coming over, it was a queen that got transported over. So they think it was a one-off. And any of the workers that they found can't create hives, as, as you mentioned, so... Thankfully, yeah. Yeah, so they are a, not a concern at all. Although I don't think it would be a bad idea to review screening processes for fruits, vegetables, anything coming in from regions where these hornets are well known, just to prevent any 
sort of possible adaptation that these hornets could develop by being exposed to our climate. Did you read that article about how somebody in Seattle posted uh, a fake, like, yeah, park hornet? Yeah. How do people have so much time on their hands? Why did they do that? Yeah, so what happened was that they posted the park sign saying that murder hornets were nesting in the area and to watch out for them, which was totally untrue, but caused quite a bit of panic in Washington. So that wraps up episode two. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at the doctors are in. Also, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, or ideas for upcoming episodes, you can email us at the doctors are in at gmail.com. We would love to have some more ideas and all that. Also, Jake and I are accepting questions for our first Ask the Vet Students episode coming up here soon. So make sure to get those in. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. All right, ready? Three, two, one. Pause Pause out. out. That one worked. Perfect. (laughs)